I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. every issue in your Twitter feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Whitney Terrell, the author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. And I'm Bibi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, author of the novel Love Marriage. And neither of us has any henchmen. What are you talking about? I absolutely have henchmen. Oh, you do? Well, <laughs> are, let's discuss. Aren't we each other's henchmen? <laughs> no, no, definitely not really. Actually, as a, as a matter of personal policy, I am anti-stooge, anti-goon, anti-thug. I think as we go on and define henchmen, we're going to decide that we don't want it. We, it would be bad no, if one of us were the no. other's henchmen. Plus, I mean, I think there are no available henchmen because every single henchman in the damn nation has signed up to hench for Trump. <laughs> is that a verb now? Hench? It is. It is now. To hench, henching, love, parnas, henched for, for Giuliani. It's a good thing that we, today, since henchmen are going to be our topic and women, uh, you know, we want to be gender discriminatory on the henchman, henchwoman thing. Um, we have people who have actually thought about henchmen and henchwomen and their narratives coming on the show to talk to us about this so we're not stuck just talking about your new verb. Hey, my new verb is awesome, but our respective Rolodexes have gotten us two fabulous writers for today's show. Later in the show, we'll be talking to your old friend and National Book Award winner, Susan Choi, author of Trust Exercise, regarding her thoughts on henchmen. But first, we have your old friend, magazine journalist, historian, and commentator Garrett Graff, joining us to talk about henchmen in the news. Garrett writes about politics, technology, and national security. He's the director of the Aspen Institute's Cybersecurity and Technology Program and is a contributor to Wired, Longreads, and CNN. He's written for publications from Esquire to the New York Times and was previously the editor of Washingtonian and Politico, which he helped lead to its first national magazine award. He's the author of New York Times bestseller, The Only Plane in the Sky, An Oral History of 9-11, The Threat Matrix, Inside Robert Mueller's FBI, and Raven Rock about the government's uh, Cold War doomsday plans. Garrett, I'm so happy you could join us. 
Sugi, uh, it's a pleasure to talk with you. Um, you know, you taught me absolutely everything I know about books <laughs> and writing. So, oh, so it's a ringer. I see how this goes. <laughs> the um, very least I can do is uh, join you for your podcast. Well, um, that's that's I that's way too much credit. Um, I was once in Garrett's vicinity as he was. Um, already a very good, very fast, um, and very thorough reporter at, um, our college paper. So wit, if you want to ask him, um, I love when you guys call it our college paper. (laughs) I'm not as a guy who says things like I went to college in New Jersey. I'm not going to let you get away with that crap. All right. Well, on the Harvard Crimson. And how was Rutgers? (laughs) (laughs) They have an excellent paper. (laughs) Um, so yeah, Garrett. Um, I was I was briefly Garrett's editor, um, and that, I'm sure that that must have been a that must have been a strange experience. Um, it's been a long time since I've Especially edited since anything. Since I found out that you used to sleep in the shower in college, Sugi, in a different podcast. So did you? <laughs> I assume you weren't editing then. <laughs> I hope not at that exact okay. moment. So Garrett, we had Emily Halpern on my college roommate, who I'm sure you must have met at least once, yeah. Yeah. and uh, and Wit surfaced that delightful anecdote. Um, <laughs> about how I got talked to about considering sleeping more. Um, All right, we got to get started here. I mean, I've had enough of the old-timey Harvard (laughs) stuff. So we can't get started without talking about the henchmen of the moment, which is why we're doing this podcast. Lev Parnas and Igor Fruman, who were born in the Soviet Union and migrated to the U.S., are businessmen with contacts uh, who have contacts with Rudy Giuliani, who's now Trump's personal lawyer. And they, through that and working with Giuliani, sought to to find information that will be damaging to Joe Biden. We've all been following this. It's part of the impeachment process. The two men have donated to the Republican Party. They became players in elite circles and eventually began working with Giuliani in the Ukraine, um, trying to find dirt on Hunter. We've just found out that there's a, just today or yesterday, a a whole entire hour and a a half-long conversation between these guys and Trump surfaced with them talking about trying to dismiss the uh, our ambassador there. Um, so they're in the middle of this. And that's the very, very short version. Uh, but between Parnas, who's decided to talk about his role in the whole thing, and uh, Adam Schiff, one of the Democrats at the helm of the impeachment, calling Attorney General William Barr a henchman, uh, the word is back on everyone's lips. Garrett, how does this term end up being one writers and also other politicians are using for these three guys? And how do you think we should be defining it? What kinds of acts make a henchman? So I, um, I'm not an uh, expert on the entomology of it uh, per se, except that I, you know, it's a term that has sort of come out of our, uh, you know, gangster culture in the United States from the 1930s, maybe even earlier. Um, but I think it's something that political reporters use as shorthand to describe. Uh, you know, people either in their official capacity or in an unofficial professional capacity uh, who are doing the bidding of powerful people. Um, and, you know, I think you've sort of seen it uh, in uh, Lev Parnas and Igor Froman, certainly um, Bill Barr. Um, you know, I think even in these last couple of days, uh, you've seen, you know, Mike Pompeo, um, the secretary of state labeled a henchman. So it's not necessarily sort of rank specific. Um, you know, you could be the secretary of state or the attorney general and be a henchman 
just as you could be, you know, sort of a, uh, you know, outsider political hanger on or like uh, Parnas or Fruman. Yeah, but you could also be a secretary and not be a henchman. That's the. I mean, I, look, we don't have enough. It's gonna, always an gonna, option. We're gonna, <laughs> we're gonna work. <laughs> we're gonna work. I mean, we don't have a definition for this, so we're gonna work with you to try to figure. I, I, like, yes, I agree with everything that you've said, but it seems like there's something distinctive about Parnas and Fruman that made people want to use that that term. It has something to do with doing nefarious deeds or something that's dirty. That 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 the that the the person they're working for doesn't want to do. Um, is that all? Is there, some, is there anything else that you guys can think of as a quality for a henchman? Uh, no, I mean, I think the, 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 be, uh, the starting point is it has to be nefarious. You know, right. no one ever has a henchman doing sort of charitable works on their behalf. Laundry. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like, um, you know, so I write primarily about Sri Lanka and the words in my arsenal really range. I mean, there's definitely henchmen. It's a global it's a global phenomenon. So certainly there are henchmen in the context that I sometimes am writing about. But I generally, I would say, hesitate to use the word henchman, even though it's sometimes accurate. Maybe for the same reasons I would shy away from a word like strongman, which in a particular context seems like exoticism. And it's not a word that's applied sort of. Um, so henchman I mean, is no, like an exotic term, but for LA or something like that. I mean, I think so. Well, I mean, it's, I think it's a slightly to me, it, there's something I have with an, an association with the mob, but also with cartoons almost. And so for me, alternatives to henchmen have included things like stooge or thug or goon or best of all state aligned forces. Um, so, I mean, Parnison, yeah, I get to write about Sri Lanka. So um, Parnas and Froman have, have more neutrally been called Giuliani's associates, right? Like, I mean, that's an even yep. more vague um, way to try to define that relationship. So what other words do you choose? Because I was combing through your work and I was trying to find a place where I was like, who is Garrett described as a henchman? And sometimes you are describing people who I would consider henchmen, but you don't really use that. It's not one of your favorite words. Why might people avoid that? Or what words do you use instead? Uh, well, I think you're right that, you know, in addition to something being nefarious, there has to be sort of a, a thuggish quality to either the work being done or the person doing the the bidding. Um, and, and that's how, um, you know, I think that that's how you end up with um you know, Pompeo or, um, you know, Giuliani or Parnas or, or Fruman or, um, you know, or, or sort of going back, you know, the, this this president has actually had um, many cycles and circles of henchmen over the years. Um, and, you you know, you go back to, um, you know, Roger Stone or Michael Cohen from oh, the yeah. 2016 campaign. Um, and, you know, could sort of see them being labeled henchmen, um, you know, sort of people, uh, you know, I think there's also sort of an organizational quality to the term henchmen that, you know, it, it implies a, a tie to, you know, a gang or, yes. uh, you know, a, a mafioso like family uh, or, you know, sort of godfather or gangster, uh, at the top of the pyramid. Um, and, and so I think that this is something that you've seen, um, you know, pretty accurately used 
to describe those associates around the president uh, who operate on sort of the, you know, mafia uh, side of the president's political operation. I think it's no accident. I think maybe the other part, and that was really helpful, Garrett, what you're saying there made me think that maybe another aspect of being a henchman is that you are in a society that has overall been corrupted. That's why I feel like the literary connections to the Raymond Chandler and Dashiell Hammett noirs of the 30s and 40s, which were really, and, and all the great noir movies of that time were period, were really about an, an, an L.A. That, that was itself already fundamentally not, not a democracy, um, and that it was run by crooked people, and that the, the people who were honest, i.e. the cops, were also crooked. Everyone was crooked. And that being a henchman sort of comes out of that milieu, even, you know, that, that you, could, you could be a, 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 someone who helped a powerful guy in a, in a non-rotten time and maybe not be a henchman. But if you're, if you're in, that, in a system that's broken, then you're a henchman. Yeah, and I, I think that that's actually a really interesting point because I think one of the other places that you see it deployed internationally is in the sort of geopolitical realm is talking about, um, you know, for instance, Saudi Arabia and the, um, you know, the people who are, uh, you know, who murdered uh, Jamal Khashoggi on behalf of the uh, Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, MBS. Um, it, you know, that sort of Saudi henchmen kidnapped him or uh, is... Uh, sort of the types of things that you see. I mean, the or, recording of those guys talking could come right out of a Chandler novel. Yes. It's completely insane. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It, and I, so it, it seems like a way of taking things out of an official system and making them unofficial. Like the henchman yes. is the place where it becomes. Oh, that's really um, good. Nebulous. Like you're um, not assigned to be a lieutenant. You're just a henchman. It, it, it's you don't really have a, a job title. Well, and I actually think that that's a that's an interesting question in, in this when you look at sort of the political usage of these words is as a henchman, can you have your own agency or are you sort of only doing someone else's bidding for them? Um, and, and so, you know, one of the um, examples I'd sort of throw out is I think during the Bush years, um, you know, a, a comparatively sort of much more polite uh, and less corrupt period of American politics than that which we find ourselves in now. Um, you know, you would I see references to, you know, Donald Rumsfeld or Dick Cheney as Bush's henchmen. Um, and, I, and I'm sort of wondering if that was actually an accurate uh, disparagement of them at the time, because those were sort of two figures who were by and large, um, you know, really sort of carrying out their own agendas. Yeah, they had a lot of, yeah, they had a lot of agency and they had a lot of their own power. I, Cheney was in particular one of the people I was thinking of, cause I was realizing, you know, people don't call Mike Pence a henchman actually that I've noticed. Um, and then I thought, of course, of other vice presidents and was sort of thinking, yeah, I mean, Cheney got so much of his own things done. Do you think that being a henchman requires aspirations to your own higher power? Um, I, I think actually generally not. I think sort of henchmen generally are defined only in their proximity to power and not actually 
you know, by sort of their own hopes of power themselves. And, and by the way, I think there's actually a sort of a clear reason why Mike Pence has dodged any such labels in the Trump era. And that's because he's he's actually done a remarkable job uh, staying out of it, everything. Uh, yeah. you, you know, you don't actually see his fingerprints on controversial conversations. You don't see him, you know, participating in uh, controversial telephone calls. You know, he sort of never seems to be in the loop, uh, you know, which could be its own problem, to be sure. Um, But, you know, Mike Pence is really not at the center of most of the scandals of the Trump administration. Mike Pence is like the, the, the senator in Godfather 2, who Michael Corleone says, you can have my answer now if you want. You'll get nothing. He's, <laughs> he's, he's the guy who's pretending to be a square or is a square, it seems like to me. You, and you bring up the mafia. Of course, the other president who probably springs to many people's minds um, when we think about the word henchman is Nixon. And I sort of think that the word henchman emerged in political coverage and imagination during the Nixon administration. Do you think that's fair? Do you think it goes back farther than that? I would stipulate that as a possible beginning of its term. Um, you know, I I don't know how commonly it would have been used around, you know, let's say the Teapot Dome scandal um, <laughs> of a century before. Um, but I do think that sort of in popular political culture that henchmen really only came into being around the idea of sort of Richard Nixon and Watergate. And that was in part because there were just so many henchmen uh, all around the president, um, you know, up to and including probably actually the president himself. Well, I want to uh, say first that, you know, the, the guys who did the break in are the most obvious henchmen of all. I mean, they almost. Yeah, of course. Like from central casting, you know, of, yeah. of henchmen. Um, and, and then, you know, from there, you know, you sort of go out in circles, um, you know, you've got Chuck Colson, um, John Ehrlichman, H.R. Halderman, um, you know, up to and including John Dean, who, of course, is one of the sort of architects of the cover up and then, you know, ends up being the first to turn um, to the prosecutors um, and the investigators on Capitol Hill and sort of blow the whistle on the whole thing. Um, but that, you know, that was, you know, there is a reason that the book, uh, and movie, uh, that captured the popular imagination out of that scandal is called all the president's men. And that's just because there there were so many henchmen involved in that situation. (laughs) Also that you're bringing up a point that we haven't touched on yet, which I think is important is that in political terms, henchmen are also often dealing with the money, right? That, I mean, that's the line of Watergate is follow the money, as, as Woodward and Bernstein were told. But, um, you know, a lot of those guys you're talking about, there were, it was slush funds that they were using to pay for these uh, uh, covert and illegal activities like the break-in and, and, and stuff like that that ended up being Nixon's undoing. And that was what the henchmen were covering up, in essence, or, or handling. Yes. Um, and, you know, certainly coming back to sort of the, nefarious nature of henching as Sugi would say um it, you know once you were dealing with break-ins and wiretaps and 
um, you know, sabotage operations, that sort of classic henching. And I think I also think of hench- henching, if this is a word, um, henchers, now henchership. I, we just made that happen. Um, I think that I also think of it as, I mean, there are a lot of bumbling henchmen. I think, again, here I have that kind of association with the comic. Um, I mean, it's from, yeah, whether it's kind of a, a, a heist movie where things are going wrong or a mob movie where someone screws up or... Um, well, there's you know, the Bugs almost- Bunny mobster who says, uh, in my, one of my favorite Bugs Bunny lines, shut up, shutting up. I don't know if you <laughs> know that one. I don't remember that one, okay. but that opportunity to have you imitate that was really great. Um, so, Garrett, I you have some great passages about the Nixon era FBI in Threat Matrix. And I had a favorite that um, as I was reading, it, I was thinking about who I thought of as a henchman and, and who I didn't. And so I, I found myself on this passage where um, there's a character, a, a person who kind of appears to be henchman like. And then kind of ends up not being henchman-like and another character who we might not have thought of in that way and who ends up behaving that way. And I wonder if you would read this passage to us. Sure. Um, so um, this is about uh, L. Patrick Gray, who was uh, the acting director of the FBI in the wake of the um, – the death of J. Edgar Hoover um, and is ultimately sort of brought down by the Watergate scandal himself. Um, Gray clashed repeatedly, sometimes publicly with Felt, who the White House believed correctly, as it turned out, was leaking information about the investigation to Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein of the Washington Post. Felt, who had aspirations of being named director both before and after Gray, remarked, The record amply demonstrates that President Nixon made Pat Gray the acting director of the FBI because he wanted a politician in J. Edgar Hoover's position who would convert the bureau into an adjunct of the White House machine. Nixon's White House capitalized on the disorder in the post-Hoover FBI to politicize the bureau in ways that Hoover never would have allowed. The long-term FBI leader had resisted Nixon's political agenda. One of the reasons, after all, that the infamous plumber's unit was created at the White House was to tackle political intelligence tasks that Hoover would refuse. Yet after his death and Gray's arrival, many of those walls that Hoover had set up fell down. Tall, athletic, and square-jawed, Felt was a recruiting poster example of a Hoover-era G-man, perhaps not an insignificant career booster in a bureau where appearances mattered to the extent that Hoover personally approved the actor who would star in ABC's TV series, The FBI. After a career that spanned chasing Nazis during World War II and battling organized crime in Kansas City and later the new left radicals of the 1960s, as well as a lengthy period working in the FBI's internal watchdog division, Felt had risen to become Hoover's day-to-day right hand. He was a by-the-book agent who, like his boss, had little tolerance for those in the Bureau who stepped outside the narrow boundaries prescribed for them. When one top agent in Oklahoma City went too far in his womanizing, felt transferred or disciplined 43 out of the office's 50 agents. It's impossible to exaggerate how high the stakes were in Watergate, recalled Felt, 
who, of course, as Deep Throat, was far from a disinterested observer of the power struggle between the FBI and the White House. We faced no simple burglary, but an assault on government institutions, an attack on the FBI's integrity, and an unrelenting pressure to unravel one of the greatest political scandals in our nation's history. In the first three months of a multi-year investigation, the FBI interviewed some 1,500 people and tracked 1,900 leads. CIA and FBI tensions ran high as leads from Watergate, money trails, employment records, covert programs, and so on kept dead-ending at the CIA. Distrust between the White House and the FBI was even more intense, with both doubting Gray's loyalty. After the 1972 election, Gray was finally nominated for the permanent director position, yet his nomination was quickly derailed as Nixon's popularity plummeted with evidence of further administration misdeeds coming to light. Under intense congressional investigation and questioning during his confirmation hearing, Gray admitted that he provided documents to the White House and that White House officials had probably lied to Congress in discussing the incident. When it became clear that Gray wasn't going to get confirmed, he asked that his nomination be withdrawn, then bitterly confessed to Senator Lowell Weicker that he had been given documents by White House aide E. Howard Hunt during a meeting in June 1972 and told to make them disappear. Gray said he burned them in his home fireplace without reading them. The idea that the head of the FBI had been involved in obstruction of justice was more than the Capitol could bear. Within days, Gray was gone from the FBI. That's great. Thank yep. you. Patrick Gray, I think, you know, that the idea of him burning the documents without even looking? Yes. I mean, he, that's classic hench work. He reminds me of Nunez in some way. Nunez yeah. is another henchman that we haven't been talking about a lot. Yes. I, I think that that's actually a great comparison. Sort of the uh, the person who... It, is clearly smart enough to know better, but is sort of a uh, willful enough idiot that he, um, you know, ends up wrapped up in everything. Their thirst for their own recognition or their own power is also one of the things that fells them. Is that a henchman quality or is that something else? I, I think it is the desire to be sort of close to power. Yeah. Um, you know, that that a hundred percent of a henchman's power comes from their association with sort of the powerful godfather like figure. Um, you know, that sort of separated from the organization uh or the chain of command, they would be a nobody. This is why Mar-a-Lago seems like it's like the henchman's club. Or I don't know, i just imagining tables and tables full of people sort of um, Mr. Burnsing their fingers and looking at Trump and adoringly. Um, I think uh, henchman central mixed with a little bit of a Star Wars bar. (laughs) (laughs) You've got both henchmen and then you also have, I think there's a difference between a henchman and a lackey. I think there are a lot a t- of lackeys down there at Mar-a-Lago, but they aren't necessarily doing things. They're just, you know, worshiping. Yeah. 
But I mean, right, this is what Lev Parnas and, and Igor Fruman did, right? Like they donated money. Isn't that also what many people at Mar-a-Lago are doing? I mean, and then this is, I think my other question is, what's the line between, I imagine henchmen sitting around also just sort of being like, what's the line between a henchman and a toady? How much sucking up is involved here? Yeah, but I, I guess a toady and a lackey, in my mind, doesn't necessarily um, imply sort of nefarious acts or schemes. Yeah. Like sure, Hortus but I mean, in Truman, the case of Froman and Parnas, like they were really, I mean, didn't they sort of, they donated with an eye to certain goals. But and then, then they went to Ukraine and started doing shit, you know? Yeah. So I, <laughs> I think they started as, they, they aspired to be toadies and then ended up as henchmen. Well, wow, what a career progression. Um, <laughs> So what other eras or administrations have had henchmen other than Nixon and Trump? We, you know, we weren't sitting around talking about Obama henchmen or Clinton henchmen. I don't, I mean, not that I recall. Uh, Clinton veered into the henchman territory. I would say the state troopers who helped him out were on the henchman spectrum. Yeah, I would say, I think if you were listening to conservative talk radio in the 1990s, you would have heard a lot about Clinton henchmen. Um, But... Um, you know, I think the other era that probably comes to mind is the, uh, you know, Oliver North era of Iran-Contra. Oh, for sure. Um, in the Reagan years. Um, but I think you're right that we have been, uh, f- f- for the good probably, largely free of henchmen in our White Houses, um, with the exception of Nixon and Trump um, and, and a few other discrete scandals. So I wanted to ask you about, it was interesting to me that I did not know that Mark Felt had worked with the Kansas City mob. That was a new piece of information from your reading there, which I I bet I knew some of those guys. I want to just use that as an excuse to read a description of a henchman from uh, uh, Raymond Chandler's story, Finger Man. It's very short. A man just in front of me was holding a gun, but he didn't see me. He was holding the gun down at his side, pressed against the material of his overcoat, and his big hand made it look quite small. The dim light that reflected from the barrel seemed to come out of the fog, to be part of the fog. He was a big man, and he stood very still, poised on the balls of his feet. I lifted my right hand very slowly and opened the top two buttons of my coat, reached inside, drew out a long thirty-eight with a six-inch barrel. I eased it into my overcoat pocket. The man in front of me moved, reached his left hand up to his face, He drew on a cigarette, cupped inside his hand, and then the glow put a brief light on a heavy chin, wide, dark nostrils, and a square, aggressive nose, the nose of a fighting man. Then he dropped the cigarette and stepped on it, and a quick, light step made a faint noise behind me. I was far too late turning. Something swished, and I went out like a light. (laughs) That is... It's very henchy. It's very henchy. Yeah. Yes. And, um, you know, I think um, as we have sort of seen with the Lev Parnas tape of the conversation with President Trump, um, you know, uh, as Trump appears to say to them about Marie Ivanovich, the uh, U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, get rid of her. Yeah. Uh, You know, you can you can sort of. You you sort of imagine that, you know, we don't really know what they meant by that. We don't really know the reality of whether Yovanovitch ended up under physical surveillance in Ukraine. But you can sort of imagine that when Trump is 
uh, you know, saying get rid of her to uh, two people who are not, you know, official U.S. government employees. He's imagining a scene sort of like what you just read. I think you're right. And I think that that the literature of mob actions has more of an effect on this Trump Trump's mind and imagination and the minds and imagination people of people around him. I'm talking like, you know, the Godfather movies, but also um, the Sopranos. I mean, people have been imbibing this mob way of being as a method of being masculine uh, through Hollywood for a long time. And I, I feel like that shows up in this administration. And yet I think that um, Conway. Um, and Conway. Yeah. yeah. I mean, she's a henchman. Yes. Well, and she's a classic femme fatale. She could be in in a, in a right out of a Chandler novel. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Yeah, she's she seems like so we have. I mean, in the Trump administration, you have official henchmen, and then you have these unofficial ones who are kind of crawling out of the woodwork to tell. Um, yeah. And yet, it's I don't know where that's going to end up. Um, Not but, a good place, Sugi. Not <laughs> a good place. Yeah, I think. Um, I mean, why don't we call Mitch McConnell a henchman? I think we do. I would like to hear that more. <laughs> I call him journalists to say it because I think he's, yeah. I mean, so you you would put McConnell in that category. Are there other people who, maybe he has a lot of agency. It, yeah, and I think that's sort of one of the things that makes McConnell sort of complicated in this is that he's also, you know, he he's been a, you know, Republican henchmen long before Trump arrived um, in his role and sort of the way that he practices politics um, in a way that, you know, sort of seems more nefarious than it is, you know, Mr. Smith goes to Washington. Yeah. Garrett, thanks so much for uh, joining us. My pleasure. This was really fun. Thanks a lot. And for our readers, uh, make sure to check out The Only Plane in the Sky and also Threat Matrix and also Garrett's uh, many other books about national security and also technology and politics. And now we're excited to be joined by Susan Choi. Susan is the author of the novels My Education, A Person of Interest, American Woman, and The Foreign Student. Her work has been a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize and the Penn Faulkner Award and winner of the Penn W.G. Sebald Award and the Asian American Literary Award for Fiction. Her book for children, Camp Tiger, came out last May, and she won, last but not least, won the 2019 National Book Award for her novel Trust Exercise. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So, Susan, we've been talking to Garrett Graff about Lev Parnas and Igor Fruman, who are frequently described in the media as Trump's henchmen or Giuliani's henchmen. But in English, the word began as hengistmen, which referred to a high-ranking attendant for a nobleman or king. And there was some connection to horses or a groomsman, not a wedding groomsman, but the stable kind of groomsman, because the term hengist meant horse. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is, I, don't, I don't know if you know this, Sugi, but this, 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 these facts all occasioned a huge argument in my house when my son, who'd been using my OED magnifying glass to burn leaves, could not find it for me, and I became outraged. Um, <laughs> but anyway, uh, but we want to talk to you, Oh, my Susan. God, that's adorable. <laughs> Do you have an OED magnifying glass, Susan? 
Yeah, I do. I do have one. And actually, my son used to love making off with it also, but my son was the kind of kid who never went outdoors. So um, he would just make off with it and not do anything destructive with it. Um, And now I hide it in a drawer. Can you send me yours? Can I have it? No way. I'm not going to lose it to you after I've like preserved it from my child all these years. All right. So anyway. You'll have to find your own. It does go back. I, I, I managed to do this by putting the, uh, the magnification on my phone really high and actually reading the OED on my phone through the camera function. And that told me that, that this royal derivation of the word, right? But I mean, look, having royal servants is criminal in a democracy. And that's why we're, we're impeaching Trump. Uh, in in certain ways, because he acts like like someone who's not a Democrat. But wait, is it actually criminal, Whitney? Is there actually is there actually a law against it? Or is okay, goddamn it, it's no, but it's <laughs> it abuse might, it of might power. Be morally distasteful. <laughs> uh, but we want to talk to really you. It is really perfect that it. Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I'm just saying it's it, it's perfect that the media would inadvertently and in using that word henchman, sort of you know burnish the the royal aura of of the president i'm sure without even having meant to i know he needs henchmen to clean his gold toilet anyway we want to talk to you about literary henchmen and women and so to do that we want to we're going to start by backing up to a time when henchmen hewed a little more closely to the original definition my aforementioned oed cited several references to hankstmen which is spelled h-e-n-x-t-m-e-n which i think should still be the spelling uh, working for English kings like Henry IV and Henry VI and Edward IV and Richard III, which made me want to ask both Susan and Sugi, who's your favorite henchman or woman in Shakespeare? My favorite, well, I think Falstaff is pretty good. Huh. Falstaff's a good one. Yeah, he's a great one. Isn't he also sort of a procurer? In a way, I mean, in doesn't a way. He do, doesn't he serve that function also? Yeah. Yeah, I, I was thinking about, does he qualify as a henchman because it's Prince Hal who rejects him when he becomes king. So doesn't, he, in other words, in other words, the mark of him being a decent king to not want a henchman or a procure, procurer in, his, in a way. Um, is procurer like the or original? Or just not want a fall staff. Right. I mean, that's, that's, I, it's been a long time since I've seen that play, but that was very, that to me was a, a mark of inferior moral character because, you know, Falstaff is like a fat drunk, but he's a good friend. That's how I recall him. A fat drunk, but a good friend. And rejecting him was, you know, um, kind of cold blooded on the part of the king. Well, but maybe, maybe I'm, I just have the wrong idea. Maybe not all henchmen are bad. I mean, is, is, is a henchman by definition, bad. You know, it seems as if it used to be like the person who took care of your horse. That's not bad. <laughs> I think that my favorite Shakespeare henchmen and women are, um, I think, Beatrix. I, it isn't much ado about nothing. Like, um, or sorry, it's not much ado about nothing. It is much ado about nothing. Um, Beatrix, like, that seems like the whole play is about the hench people. Can I right. say hench people wit? Sure. <laughs> okay. Like, it seems like. Yeah, it seems like that whole, I mean, it's the sort of Emma Thompson version of it that's very stuck in my head. And, right, she's Hero's henchwoman, isn't she? Or, like, I guess that raises the question of, um, yeah, I mean, can I, I, guess, I guess I think a henchwoman can be good. And, and Shakespeare makes sense, but sort of what is the modern literary heyday of the henchman? Is it Dickens and Oliver Twist, or is it 
later is it 1930s where there's actually sort of a noir version of much ado about nothing um that i remember also liking um or am i missing some obvious era entirely like the when is the the prime of the henchman before you told me about the horse origin i would have said that a henchman or a hench person is you know the person lower down on the ladder from the alpha who's doing their dirty work for them i mean yeah. isn't that what we associate that word with and that's a that's negative so you know um or they could be a person lower down on the ladder from the alpha who's who's kind of uh, not necessarily doing their dirty work, but providing them with like low company while they slum it for a while. Like that's what Falstaff is. Right. Isn't he kind of? Yeah. When, when Prince Hal is kind of going through his like wild and wooly period, you know, Falstaff is his pal because they're, they're, you know, they're being like bros together. I mean, I do associate. So it's not necessarily that Falstaff does his dirty work. I do associate the word henchman with criminality. You know, mm-hmm. I, obviously the original definition doesn't doesn't say that, but I would say exactly what Susan says. It's the guy who does the thing that the alpha doesn't want to do or doesn't want to be connected to, so he can't get in trouble. You know, like Luca Brazzi in The Godfather. You know, or any of a number right. of like gun toting, you know, stiffs in in you know Raymond Chandler's crime fiction. You know, what you're saying is just is just confirming this idea of hierarchy. There has to be underlying hierarchy for there to be henchmen. The henchmen are always on a lower rung of the ladder and they're always sort of in a position of servitude, right? In the way that the horse, the horse people, you know, maybe they weren't engaged in criminal behavior, but they were retained by the alpha person. They were servants. They, they, they did the bidding of somebody. And to me, that's, what's interesting about the characters that is that I think you can fall in love as a reader with a hench person because their their primary characteristic is loyalty. And even if they're being loyal to a bad person, that loyalty can be admirable. Does that make sense? Does that seem crazy? I, it doesn't seem crazy, but, you know, is that loyalty pure? You're talking about loyalty, the loyalty of the hench person being admirable, even if their actions are deplorable, or even if they're... Um, engaged in criminality, their loyalty to the, the person for whom they hench, whoever, whoever that person is, <laughs> you're, you're talking about how we can like romanticize that and find that admirable, but isn't that, I mean, is it pure loyalty or is it just loyalty? Is it like a performance of loyalty in context? Like Michael Cohen said that he would take a bullet for Trump until, you know, he then turned around and, and, and spilled, right? It's like until he was up against the wall and then he said, oh, actually, you know, I'll cooperate. So his loyalty was very um, situation specific. You know, it lasted until he was in handcuffs. That's so true. do we admire him because he was once loyal? And this is my question. Or find him even more contemptible because his loyalty was like, you know, so obviously not authentic. Like, Susan's, are you suggesting that in order to be a henchman or henchperson uh, to engage in henchery, you are doing something? It seems like there's some inherent hypocrisy to it in that. Right. It's something that the alpha, as you were saying, doesn't want to be seen doing. Does it does the henchman also have aspirations to power? Is that how you would define it? Of course. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I would say that the that the henching is I don't know. I don't want to shoot down with um, romantic idea of the loyal hench person. But I think the henching <laughs> is, is always like totally utilitarian. Right. It's transactional. It's not 
you're not performing these deeds out of your selfless love for this person. You're, you know, you're fulfilling the mandates of your hierarchical role in the hopes of one day, like unseating that person above you. All right. So, so I, I would say very cold blooded henching that applies to Iago, a classic like henchman who wants to take over, like in my view. But the Luca Brazza, Brazzi character from The Godfather, who you see in the very opening of the movie when he's practicing the way he's going to speak to the Godfather and thank him for all this stuff. He's a guy who seems like a purely loyal henchman <laughs> yeah. who does die for the Godfather and would never want to take over the Godfather's you know, position. Yeah, you're right. Um, and, and Luca does die in part because I think he doesn't hench successfully enough. Mm. He's too sentimental. Yeah. Maybe that's what's interesting about these characters is that some of them do fall prey to this, you know, this uh, this inner conflict between sentimental loyalty and, you know, cold-blooded utilitarianism. Luca cares too much about what the Godfather thinks of him in, an, in a sincere way. And so he's got to go. <laughs> I mean, right, the, so- the, the, the system within which he exists, like, weeds him out. He's too soft. So we want to talk to you about hench people in your own work. Um, And we're going to get to trust exercise. But when I was thinking about this episode, I realized that your novel, American Woman, was in some ways about a henchwoman. Um, Or at least that's the way that I started to think about it. I wondered if you thought that was a fair way to characterize uh, Jenny Shimada. That's so interesting. I've never, ever imagined her bearing that bearing that label, the henchwoman or the henchperson label. But it, it is a really interesting way to think about her because she's a person who is torn between uh, the pure sentiment of loyalty and these very, very um, pragmatic considerations having to do with the fact that she's a wanted criminal living underground, in hiding, running out of money. And so she's basically taken on as a paid hench person to these other, to these other, um, outlaws, you know, you know, outlaws. Yeah. I was, I was, I was casting about for the way. Yes. These other outlaws, but outlaws who are, who are less pure than she, she feels already like dirtied from the very beginning by the fact that she kind of agrees to, uh, be their hench person. She, she agrees to be their hench person because she has no other options left for herself. So she lacks that loyalty. She lacks that sense of, you know, a, a, a sentimental bond. But then, then that enters into it when she forms this attachment to one of her, uh, you know, one of her fellow outlaws. She, she develops an actual genuine caring for this, for this person and it totally complicates her role and messes everything up. That makes it seem like, yeah, being a henchman is a complicated psychological position from which to create a character. And well, it's go ahead. Yeah, no, I mean it's, it it definitely is, and it's certainly not not a way that I ever thought of her. But I think it's I think it is an interesting way to think of her because um, she, you know, she's been part of an organized movement 
to, you know, serve a greater good. And she hasn't thought of herself as a criminal, but her movement has engaged in criminal activity. And then it all spirals from there. It's like you engage in criminal activity, even if you're idealistic. Now you're a criminal. Now you're associated with other criminals. Now you're helping those criminals, you know, avoid apprehension, which in itself is a crime. So she does end up sort of, um, experiencing this like moral undertow, like, like her, 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 uh, her moral, her moral stance toward the world gets really undermined. So as we were discussing before, one clear characteristic of a henchman, hench person is that they do <laughs> the dirty work. Um, I really like that I, we I like can degenderize henchmen. Yes. I think that's good. I um, like that. One clear characteristic of a of a hench person is that they do the hench folks is that they do the the dirty work, their quote Lord doesn't want to do, and this turns out to be a really interesting way also I think to think about your novel trust exercise, and um, we'll follow your lead on on spoilers there. But, it, but is it safe to say that if there is a quote Lord who has henchmen in this book, it's the drama teacher Mr. Kingsley? Um, Trust Exercises set in the early 80s at a performing arts high school in an unnamed city that isn't Los Angeles or New York. Um, and, and beyond that, we don't know where it is. And the students that we um, are introduced to are, are in the drama program. There is theater students and their teacher is this um, really charismatic and, and quite fascinating person, Mr. Kingsley, they're very, very enamored of Mr. Kingsley and, and concerned with, um, fulfilling his expectations of them. I think it's definitely fair to say that if there's a lordly, if there's a lordly figure in the book, it's Mr. Kingsley. I mean, you know, first of all, look at what he's named. (laughs) And second of all, look at the way he acts. Um, yeah, he's, he is a, he has a, He's a lordly presence, um, but this idea of whether he has henchmen is really interesting to me. Of course, I, d- I didn't, you know, the, I didn't set out to to write a story about Mr. Kingsley and his hench people. I never thought of it <laughs> that way. But what's so fun about writing a novel is that you then get to see what other people, <laughs> what what interpretations they come away with. So, in what way do you think Mr. Kingsley has hench hench folk? Well, I was kind of thinking of, um, you know, the character of Martin as being a sort of a, a hench person for him, but also maybe the faculty there who don't often report or do anything about his behavior. Um, I can't help but think of, um, given that Whitney has given us this, you know, astonishing set of magnified facts, um, you know, just the verb grooming comes to mind, um, oh, right, yeah. the way that people are prepared for certain kinds of events or not prepared for certain kinds of events and to, to think of them in certain ways. Um, so we've, we've brought this reading to your novel, but you kind of think it holds. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, I think, I don't know if I think it can be mapped directly onto the book. I think it actually, interacts in a really interesting way with the book, especially um, if if you start thinking of this 
henchman idea as as being well, if you start thinking of it in terms of agency, like we we generally think of of henchmen as as acting knowledgeably to advance the interests of I guess we're we're using this this royal terminology, their lord or their their boss, whoever the boss is, the henchman, um, the hench person acts deliberately to advance that person's interests. But is that the only definition? I mean, I think that, you know, when we start talking about the world of trust exercise there, I would argue is not, um, there, there's, there's not sort of a constellation of, of subordinate people who are, who are, deliberately acting to advance like mercenary interests. But I think that there's a culture, um, in the book, there's a culture of, um, certain assumptions, assumptions and certain norms that all added together do advance the interests of, of some over those of others, you know, and it's structural. It's not criminal, if that makes sense. It's a structural problem, which I think makes it more difficult to put your finger on. You can't really say, well, it's so-and-so's fault. You know, they set out to victimize this person. Um, instead you have to go, well, you know, it feels as if there are people being victimized here, but who's, who's to blame? Like, who are we going to, who are we going to charge? Like who can we point the finger at? A henchman, I, I guess in this particular context, you could also think of as someone who doesn't act or who allows a thing to be covered up who enables a kind of behavior rather than acting affirmatively to do something on behalf of the Lord. Is that, that's sort of what the way I was thinking about it in the terms of this book. Yeah. I mean, you could, you could widen the definition that way, you know, and you could, you could say, um, you know, our bystanders, <laughs> our bystanders henching for some, you know, dark agency simply by not doing something to, um, you know, diminish the power of that dark agency, whatever it is. I mean, are we all, are we all henching for something, <laughs> you know, like, uh, I guess, I guess now we're just really, we're, we're really casting the net pretty wide in terms of, um, culpability. I was just going to say that I think being in a fraternity in college is a little bit like being a henchman for the patriarchy. I mean, that's kind of what, in retrospect, that's what it feels like to me, you know, for for being somebody, you know, that, that, that wasn't changing a particular power structure or saying anything about it, though I knew it to exist, if that makes sense, to step away from your book, but into sort of related territory, I think. Yeah. Well, it's interesting that you say that because I think then we could also say, you know, are you, you know, are you a henchman given a certain sort of set of cultural norms or social norms? Um, maybe in one set of norms you aren't, but then those norms evolve and your behavior in the past suddenly looks very different to you than it might have at the time. I mean, a friend of mine told me an amazing story about a frat brother who, um, and I, I won't even say where this happened or when, except that it was it happened in the in 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 the deep past, like many decades ago. But this person's story, this frat brother's story, was that when all of his frat brothers decided to gang rape an intoxicated young woman in their frat house, when it was his turn to go in, he sat with her 
and told her that she deserved better than what was happening to her. So this was a story that this person used to tell. And again, I didn't know the person. I knew someone to whom this person told this story. This person may not even exist for all I know. But let's pretend this is a fictional character. Mm-hmm. And, and that is the action he undertakes in this situation. Um, the, the cultural and social norm that he's living within is we gang rape women who pass out drunk in our frat house. It happens all the time. It's happened, you know, our frat brothers who initiated us, they did it. We do it and we will initiate new frat brothers and they will do it too. And this person in that moment is, is horrified, but his horror is totally private. And so he resists the paradigm by trying to communicate an encouraging message to the victim, but he does nothing else, right? He does not remove the victim from the frat house. Uh, he, you know, he does not put her clothes back on. He does not call law enforcement. He does nothing except not actively participate. Um, you know, so did he succeed in not being a henchman in that moment or did he totally like, it's an interesting question. I think he believes in that moment that he succeeds in not being a henchman. Oh, he does see, not- I totally disagree. That seems obviously that he is exactly being the thing that I'm trying to talk about. Right. That story is horrifying. Right. No, I, I completely, I completely agree with you, but I'm saying that there is a, you know, the, these, these shifting social and cultural norms that I think we can say now, no, dude, you are a henchman, but are there things we're doing now for which we feel blameless that we'll later look back on with the same regret? Probably. Just a thought. I mean, I think, you know, one of the things that is occurring to me listening to you talk about this is maybe some of my revulsion at Trump is that it seems like he's a henchman himself. I mean, not only that he has henchmen, but that he himself is a henchman who is shamelessly like violating the rules of henchmanship by henching in the open, doing this sort of stuff and sort of declaiming that it is all fine. Um, who would you say he's henching for? I, that's what I was trying to, I mean, I agree. I was thinking but- of that. I mean, I don't know, sort of his larger family, right? I think, you know, you invoked, wait, you invoked the mob before. And I think, um, you know, when we spoke with Garrett, who has covered law enforcement um, for many years, also about some of those connections. Yeah, I mean, that would be the question. Who is he henching for? His He's henching for his own imaginary idea of himself that isn't a person who doesn't actually exist. I mean, I don't even know. Like, he's the first ever self-henchman. Um, <laughs> I would say, I would go to the metaphor that Susan was using. Well, that there's I mean, this- yeah. There's a system that he's henching for. Yeah, like what what did you, Susan, you said um, henchman, no, wait, you said henchman for the patriarchy, um, which I thought was also a helpful, um, but I think one of the things that you talked about before was the way that henchmen sort of do the dirty work that they don't want other people to see. And Trump is sometimes having other people do the dirty work, but he's also doing some some of the dirty work himself. Um, just out in the open. And I mean, that's also an interesting way that the agency becomes complicated. I mean, does, does the henchman have to be aware that what they're doing is bad? How self-aware do we expect henchmen to be? Like if, if you aren't self-aware, is it your fault? Is a lack of self-awareness also your fault? I think, you know, it becomes really, really interesting just in terms of, 
of the American electorate. You know, I think that a lot of a lot of voters who support the president truly believe that they're supporting a good person and they turn to they turn in my opinion. I don't think this is controversial, but they they turn a blind eye to a lot of misdeeds that I think are very um, well established in addition to a, a, a large number of misdeeds that are not as well established yet, but I think are going to be very well established. Um, are these voters who, you know, maintain the power of this president, are they, are they hench folk, you know, despite the fact that they believe themselves to be supporting someone who's good? Like a, a lot, I, 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 I choose to believe that the vast majority of voters who support Trump truly believe that he's good for the country. You know, I, there's no other explanation that uh, that I can find for the level of support he enjoys. Now, we, we know that there's a virulent, virulent section of his base who um, make their incredibly um, vile and toxic views known. And I'm not talking about those people. I'm not talking about self-declared white supremacists. I'm not talking about, um, you know, neo-Nazis. I'm actually talking about the the kind of everyday run-of-the-mill American voters who nevertheless, despite all the things that we think are obviously objectionable about Trump, support him. And I, I really do think that those people must be supporting him because they believe that he is a good, you know, he is, he is good for Christianity. He is good for capitalism. He is good for whatever it is that they think he is good for. Um, I don't think he's good for any of those things that they think he's good for. And, and some of those things I don't think are good. That's just my opinion. But, um, yeah, Sugi, I, I, I hear your question. Like, is the fact that they, you know, have, have the best of intentions, um, is that to be weighed against what I think is, is the staggering damage that's, that, that they're doing by legitimately voting this person into power? I don't know. I, I, I actually think that they are to be blamed for their ignorance. So that's my opinion. So, I agree with you. <laughs> it's a new one surprise. I mean, it brings it, but it does bring up this, uh, uh, not to get too far off in the weeds, you know, we, we had Tom Frank on the show who wrote the book, What's the Matter with Kansas, who talks about why people vote for uh, 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 Republicans when the Republican Party is clearly not, in, not working in their interests. In fact, they're harmed economically by those votes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do think there is a thing that happens at times when uh, – a person who is the victim of a malign lord can become that lord's backer or hench person, right? That there's a way in which a really broken system can transform. And I'm not talking about like victim blaming, right? But I'm talking about the complicated ways in which people who are involved in broken systems can end up being injured by them and then act to perpetuate them in certain ways, whether consciously or unconsciously. Um, Oh yeah, absolutely. And I wondered if you, I think that is something that happens in your book in a certain way. And there's a passage in here that I wanted to have you, we wanted to have you read that where we could sort of talk about that issue. I wondered if you could set that passage up for us, then maybe go ahead and read it and we could talk about it afterward. Yeah. So the passage is, um, it's a passage from the point of view of this character, Sarah. She's one of the students in this school, and um, she is 
going through a lot. She's, she's kind of in a downward spiral, um, having started as a pretty happy, well-adjusted young woman who, who liked school and, um, and, and had friends and, and she's, you know, gone through a breakup has kind of had her self-esteem sort of the bottom of her self-esteem has just fallen out and, 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 and it's just, it doesn't, there doesn't seem to be anything that remains. Um, and she's actually immediately before this passage, she and her ex-boyfriend, um, who aren't speaking to each other anymore. Nevertheless, when they run into each other in a deserted part of the school, they end up having sex and, um, and they're seen, they're seen by one of their fellow students. And, um, and so in addition to the pain of rejection that she's experiencing is this humiliation of, of having been seen sort of, um, you know, having sex with her ex-boyfriend in the hall of her school. Um, and I think that's enough to set the scene up. Yeah. Great. Hopefully you've chosen a pretty complicated scene in which a lot of things are referred to you. Um, including this fellow student, Manuel. So Manuel is someone that uh, Sarah has never really spoken to. Manuel's always kind of kept to himself, but it it becomes clear. um, A couple of things become clear all at the same time. One of them is that it becomes clear that it's Manuel who saw Sarah. Another thing that becomes clear is that um, Sarah was their teacher's favorite. She was a bit of a pet. She was sort of enjoying special attention from their teacher that attention has been withdrawn and it seems like Manuel is now enjoying that special attention instead of Sarah. Um, so I'll just read. They know so much about each other yet so little Manuel knows or thinks he knows about her. A whore would have more dignity. She knows or thinks she knows about Manuel furtive and smug, the closed doors and new shirts And yet she doesn't know where Manuel lives, doesn't know his home number, can't conceive where such information might be found. She's already forgotten the morning freshman year that a four-alarm fire broke out on the far side of the massive apartment complex she lives in with her mother, a complex so massive they couldn't even see smoke from their carport and only found out what the sirens were about from TV, where they'd seen the complex filmed from the air and the flames six or eight blocks away. Distant, Distant though the fire had been, It had made for bad traffic and her mother had dropped her off late. But when she went into the office to get her late pass, the office ladies cried, oh my gosh, honey, are you okay? Because in the office, they knew her address. They'd actually looked through their records when they'd seen the big fire on the news to check if they had any students in danger. So of course, home addresses are known in the office, but she doesn't think of this. She isn't scheming. She lacks not just the skills for, but the very resolve for premeditation. Nevertheless, even in her tiredness, she's alert. Having noticed some things, she keeps noticing more things. Her work on costume crew is basically finished. She has not been assigned as a dresser, but she's still responsible for the general state of the costumes, the costume shop and dressing room or her wheelhouse. She patrols them, tidying and repairing. Particularly the hats were her thing for this show. She monitors their clusters of feathers or fruit or their bands of grow grain. She gets out the glue gun, if need be. In hushed hours before run-through starts when nobody's around, she'll check the boys' dressing room, where they 
neglect their fedoras, leave them tossed on the floor. She'll reform the crowns, dust them off, put them pointedly up on the shelves with the masking tape labels where the boys should have put them themselves. The male cast members share two extremely overtaxed garment racks, cardboard dividers sticking up at dense intervals, bearing their character names. Gambler 1, Gambler 2, Sal Army Guy, Sky Masterson. They do a lousy job of hanging up their costumes. This Friday after school, before the show's second and last weekend begins, Sarah's going to be slaving away at the ironing board. She wiggles her fingers into, pries apart, the crushed mass of male clothes between Sal Army Guy and Sky Masterson. Here's a pale green shirt. Perhaps it's a color the store would call seafoam. The label, Armani. Duh. This isn't part of Sky Masterson's costume. She almost laughs at Manuel's lame deception. But of course, no one else is alert to his shirts. No one else has realized, as she has, that he wears these shirts only at school, changes back into his cheap, crappy shirts, his poor boy's shirts, before going home. Despite its crushed condition, the fabric of the shirt feels newly stiff and fresh. No gray ring in the collar. No yellow stains at the pits. Sarah extracts it. She turns on the iron, waits patiently for it to heat, and then irons the shirt with great care, even using the sleeve form. When she's finished, she folds it with buttons centered and sleeves underneath, the way she's seen men's shirts come from the dry cleaners. And then she takes it into the costume shop and hides it on a high shelf above the boxes of notions and buttons, stuff that currently isn't in use. In the course of the week and weekend, two more shirts appear of the same sort and in the same place, and she does the same thing with them both. She watches Manuel for signs of unease. He always looks slightly uneasy. He never makes eye contact if they happen to pass near each other. Their enmity is an agreed-upon fact and requires no further acknowledgement. Joelle is his dresser, and he and Joelle are now buddies. They're constantly laughing and joking in Spanish. Joelle might even know Manuel's address, but Sarah doesn't think of asking her. No longer cares where Manuel lives and doesn't recall why she did. She isn't aware of a plan for the shirts. She's just stealing them because they make her angry. Though whether at Manuel or Mr. Kingsley or both, she isn't sure. Her anger is intense but obscure. Susan, thank you so much. That passage is amazing. But I don't know what, how she's becoming a henchwoman there. What is the nature of hench personship in this situation? Isn't she confronting Mr. Kingsley's improper affair with Manuel? Well, I, yeah, I would. I mean, I would say yes, but I feel like it was really important certain lines in there that, and I, of course, Susan wrote it, so I'm more interested in what she has to say. But I would just you talked about that she's not doing this premeditatedly, right? That seems important. Um, and, and, mm-hmm. and that her anger is intense but obscure. So I feel like she's angry at the system. She doesn't know to be angry at the system, right? But she's angry at Manuel because Manuel's displacing her in the system that puts Mr. Kingsley at the head and that makes his, his attention so important. And so she's going to harm him. But in a way, that's reinforcing the system. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, it does. It absolutely does. Um, it, it reinforces this system because in this system, she and Manuel are both powerless and she doesn't know how to turn her anger at its true source. Right. Um, and so she turns her anger toward this. Another victim. You could say fellow victim. Yeah. Another victim. Um, or, or, you know, because we don't really know what's going on in these relationships, we can say she turns her anger toward another person who's powerless the way she's powerless. She and Manuel are both lacking in power. They're both very dependent on the favor of the attention of the powerful person. And Sarah, instead of attacking that structure in which the powerful person is the powerful person and holds all the cards, she turns her anger toward the other person who has no cards, right? Yeah. The other person besides her, which is something that happens elsewhere in the book too, um, in more explicit ways, you know, moments at which people who've been wronged, not knowing how to go for what wronged them kind of direct their anger at, at, at someone else who's also, also powerless. Um, yeah. So that's, that's, that's what she does. And, you know, maybe later another character in the book kind of speculates on this, this series of actions speculates on Sarah's motives and says, you know, what did she think she was doing? Um, did she think maybe she was rescuing somebody? Did she think maybe she was rescuing herself? Mm. You know, what she does is, is she, um, she exposes Manuel in a way that leads to Manuel's losing, losing his position, losing, losing his place. And, um, you know, she's lost her place. So she makes sure that he loses his too. And, um, the person who assigns the places, you know, the person who says like, you get a special place, you don't, that person, nothing about their situation changes. Right. Right. I mean, her anger at her powerlessness, right. Another way to think about that, I guess, maybe use the word powerless. I was thinking of, she seemed so angry at like her perceived, like other people perceiving her future or her place as disposable. And then her turning that on someone else, like the disposability of henchmen, right? Like, I don't know the idea that I think of henchmen also as, I mean, the people who get tied to the concrete blocks and sink to the bottom of the ocean. And then everyone's like moving on. Um, and right. Yeah. There's a, there's a way in which they're disposable, um, and interchangeable. Susan, we are so glad yeah. you could join us for this talk. I'm so glad I could join you too. Um, I enjoyed it greatly. We really appreciate your time. And we encourage listeners to pick up a copy of the national book award winning trust exercise. That's it for the fiction nonfiction podcast. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. You can subscribe to us by typing fiction slash non slash fiction into the search bar of your favorite podcast app. You can also listen, find previous episodes, and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com, where the fiction nonfiction podcast page is listed under the LitHub radio tab. If you value discussions like this one, take a few seconds to give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. We'll post a link to the books we referenced this week on Facebook at FNF Pod, on Twitter at FNF Talk, 
and on Instagram at fiction.non.fiction.podcast. Happy henching.